I'm thrilled with today's guests. Uh, this is my first married couple guest. I've been doing this thing for two years. Peter Baker and Susan Glasser to say that these are two of the smartest people in any room you're going to be in is an understatement. Um, their best-selling monster book, The Divider Trump in the White House, their third book is in paperback now. Uh, their first two books, Kremlin Rising, Vladimir Putin's Russia and the End of the Revolution, and The Man Around Washington, Life and Times of James A. Baker, also bestsellers. But I want to say, and, and Peter is, of course, the chief New York Times correspondent for the White House. Susan Glasser must read Letter from Biden's Washington for the New Yorker. But first, I want to talk about your son. I want you guys to cavell a little bit, okay? 18 years old, winning the James Polk Award for the, the Polk Award <laughs> for journalism. Talk to me about Theo. Well, and Brad, we, Brad, 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 Brad. You know, he, it's funny. Our, our, he's 18. He's at Stanford. He just finished freshman year, going to sophomore year. And he's uh, he always told us he was never going to be a reporter. Uh, didn't want to do that. And we were totally fine with that, actually. But he then called up one day and said, I'm working for the student paper. And he called up a little bit later. So I'm investigating the president of the university. <laughs> and we were like, well, couldn't you start a little lower with like a professor or something like that? But he, uh, he took it on and he's, uh, turns out to, to, to be a predetermined journalist. Well, that's right. Uh, thank you, by the way, for having us. And we are honored to, yeah. uh, to break new ground as, uh, as, as a married yeah. couple on your show. Uh, <laughs> the good news is having written three books uh, together and, and starting in on a fourth, we're still on speaking terms. So yeah. that's, that's good. You guys are like the Joe and Meek of the literary world. I mean, it's just <laughs> working together full-time, living together full-time. What's this, what's the secret sauce to keep? Because that's got to put tremendous, tremendous pressure on a relation. I mean, good and bad, good pressure, bad pressure. So what's the secret to making it work personally and professionally together? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, this is it. This is a workaholic age, right? Uh, you yeah. know, everybody is working around the clock. So it, the way we figure it, at least we have a shared common interest. And, uh, you know, all the people who say to us, and I, I sympathize at times, believe me, that uh, they couldn't possibly imagine working with their spouse. But the flip side is, I couldn't imagine working on such all consuming projects. And, yeah. You know, the advantage is that, that we get to share that together. And, uh, you know, book writers can disappear into their world. So I guess it's one that we get to disappear into together. Are there any rules of uh, engagement as far as, okay, here's where we take it off the table and here's where we, is there one night a week where it's like, okay, we're not talking books, we're just talking family or, or that just doesn't exist? That's a good idea. We should try that. I think <laughs> <laughs> we're not organized enough to have. A <laughs> we, we couldn't figure out a whole night to do something, anything. <laughs> we're, we're too overcommitted. Peter, I just want to talk to you a little bit about your beginnings. I want to know how a guy drops out of or gets asked to leave Oberlin College after two years and ends up in the rarefied position you're in. There needs to be some strange line that connects those dots. <laughs> Well, I, I was not the best student, as you can tell, obviously. I, I, I love my school. It was a great school. Uh, I didn't make full use of it, which I'm hoping is not a hereditary thing. But the, uh, uh, the truth is I was, I was already interested in being a journalist, and I was, I was a little too eager to jump out into the real world. I was doing internships, and, and uh, I wanted to get going. I was just too, too, too eager, I suppose, to get started. But it was, uh, I, I was lucky. I, I don't recommend that path for anybody. Uh, it was happenstance that I got a job at, uh, in Washington and, and, and uh, got another job and another job. Um, but journalism is a great, great industry. It's a great business. It's a great field because, in fact, actually, it's better than working, right? I mean, you know. <laughs> it's so much fun. It really is. <laughs> and it's like college. It's the thing I didn't get in college, which is constant learning. 
Yeah. Susan is a Harvard graduate. How did you meet this Oberlin dropout? <laughs> <laughs> well, do you remember the old, uh, you know, back when people read print newspapers, they actually were funded by classified ads and the- Yes, well, that was it. That was the money. That was that the money. That was the money, yeah. right? And the Washington Post used to have a, you know, a, an advertising campaign that said, I got my job, you know, from the Washington Post. Right. I remember well, that. Well, you know, that's how Peter and I met. We got, <laughs> you know, we, we got each other through the Washington Post. Uh, I started work at the Post in January of 1998 as uh, a, an editor supposed to be in charge of national investigative reporting. And Peter was the junior guy on the White House totem pole at the Post then, which means he drew the assignment of all the, you know, the sort of Clinton investigations and the Paula Jones lawsuit. Remember that? Well, that, of course, is what metastasized in a way into the uh, scandal involving Clinton's relationship with Monica Lewinsky. So basically, one week after I arrived at the Washington Post, I found myself dealing with a scandal involving the President of the United States and an intern. And Peter and I, you know, were thrown together. We like to say we're the only good thing that came out of the Monica Lewinsky. <laughs> you know, it's, it's it, speaking of Monica Lewinsky, just a sidebar. I had dinner with her a few years ago. She reached out to me, uh, was looking for a job, and I was so moved and saddened and empathetic of how tough her place in the world is, right? She She's a prisoner. The very thing that is defined her and given her relevance is the very thing that keeps her in prison from moving on. And I couldn't, I was taken how bright she was and how engaging she was. Uh, and I walked away going, what a delightful woman and how sad what happened was. Yeah. I had very uh, glancing encounters with her during the story. She obviously didn't talk to reporters yeah. uh, all that much, but I, a little bit of, of, of encounter. She was, I thought, what you said, bright, smart, engaging, and totally misunderstood by most of the public. But I think what's really impressive, though, is what she's done in the last few years is really yes. kind of yes, claimed ownership over her life again and basically said, I am who I am. I'm going to speak out based on my experiences. And I think she's become kind of a you know role model for a lot of younger people who didn't know her, didn't live through the experiences that we all watched because we're older, but have come to admire her for how she has, uh, you know, how she has emerged from this. She's a really good writer too. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to get, get to the, to the Trump book in a minute. Just as we're on Clinton and, and obviously uh, I want to, Peter, what are your thoughts on how history is going to look at Clinton? Because I see in the last three or four or five years, whether it's Jeffrey Epstein, whether it's just as as Monica has kind of taken ownership of and the, the bullying and the Clintons, that I think it's going to be a very damaged legacy, whereas I would not have said that 10, 12 years ago. You know, he's, he's so interesting because of his great skill and promise and his great flaws, right? And that's what makes him so interesting as a historical figure, because he obviously was brighter, more more capable than most any other person of his generation. He saw connections and understood the new world he was leading the country into. And so many things that happened in the 90s, obviously, um, look better than today in terms of peace and prosperity and all that. And yet his own, you know, demons, obviously, his own uh, appetites that he wasn't able to ever con completely control you know, brought him down and to some extent. And obviously the, the, the Me Too movement makes us rethink some of the things we thought about in the 90s that were excused or forgiven, uh, but probably, you know, shouldn't be, certainly in today's context, wouldn't be. And I think that that's always been, you know, what makes him such a, a, a you know, a fascinating figure in history. 
Susan, I want to just reference one of your, your older books, uh, and then we'll move forward on Trump. The Jim Baker book. Have you guys ever played the parlor game? What would have happened if Jim Baker was working for Donald Trump? And what what would that have looked like? I mean, just I, I, I don't think it would have lasted more than five minutes, but I'm just just taking what you know so much about Baker and obviously so much about Trump and their time in the White House. Take me through a, a little imaginary tour there. Yeah, I mean, so in part, right, it really is imaginary in the sense that the thing that we know about Jim Baker is that he would have found a way not to work for yeah. Donald Trump, because uh, one of the things about being a sort of congenital winner in life, and, and Baker really has been that in his long and sort of varied career, is knowing uh, you know when there's a, a reasonable scenario for success and when there isn't. And the truth of the matter is, is that uh, the fantasy of uh, a Jim Baker who could sort of corral the Trumpian energy and uh, connection with his voters and turn it into some kind of meaningful uh, White House that functions in a disciplined way is is a fantasy. It's it's actually not possible. And so it wasn't a matter of just getting a different White House chief of staff. There's a reason Donald Trump cycled through four different White House chiefs of staff. Uh, and he's someone who, uh, you know, it just will always be his own chief of staff. And that's the way yeah. he ran his uh, Trump organization, his business. It's the way he ran his campaigns. It's the way he ran his White House. Uh, it is who he is. And I think that Baker, you know, we found that it's, it's so fascinating, right? Because Washington is a town full of smart, calculating, workaholic, disciplined uh, lawyers like Jim Baker. And uh, he had yet this innate sense about people and what it took to, you know, get to the outcome that he wanted without alienating people, right? That's his great gift. He's essentially one of the world's most accomplished negotiators, I would say. And, you know, you can't, Trump can be managed in a way, right, by steering him, you know, using the controls from behind. But in the end, he can only be for Donald Trump. And that's the thing about working for him uh, that makes it basically impossible. You know, I knew Trump fairly well, as well as anybody knew him. I was a friend of Trump, which meant uh, he did my show on CNBC a bunch of times when I had a talk show. They did three seasons of The Apprentice at my ad agency. They came up and did tasks. I lived in one of his buildings. Our kids went to the same school. And and I never saw, I always said he was a lounge act. He was a sleazebag. Uh, I wouldn't do business with him, but never saw the darkness. And most people who knew him that never saw the dark, dark, dark side. And it was that to me was the biggest surprise of Donald Trump's president. In, in your book, it's 700 pages of chilling anecdotes. Um, what most of the people that you talked to and you interviewed about 300 people, did they see it coming? Did any of these people and just, or, or where, because there was so many, there was such a theme of people saying to you, like, you have no idea how bad it was. You had no <laughs> idea how bad it was. And were there any that saw it earlier on than others? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think that your observation is really important because you're right. Donald Trump had been part of our public life for a long time. And people saw him as a showman or a bombastic this or that, yeah. maybe a sleazeball, as you say. But you're right. What we're talking about now, the authoritarianism, the, 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 you know, the lack of commitment to democracy as we have you know, always seen it, they're very dark. And that's a different thing. I don't know that a lot of people saw it quite that way. A lot of people wanted to believe, right? They wanted to believe he could be managed. They wanted to believe that the office would make him more serious, that he would be, you know, um, 
mature in some way. And that was obviously never going to happen. You don't change your spots at age 70 or what have you. You're, you are who you are. But I don't know that there are too many people that we interviewed who I would say fully saw. They all thought that they could manage it in they the were, system. Yeah. And most of them, 90% of them discovered that they could Well, couldn't. I mean, I, I, I disagree with that, actually. Okay. I think that Donald- Now Trump, we go. Now we, now we got the married. Now we got the married couple stuff. Okay, good. That's great. Like, first of all, I think every woman I ever met saw right through Donald Trump. Uh, and the idea that he was appealing or charismatic in any way, like, sorry, like, you know, yeah. no. Uh, but putting that aside, because uh, clearly he has uh, a gift when it comes to connecting with a certain kind of audience with a, you know. No, he's, he's an evil genius. I mean, there, 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 there is a genius there here. Yeah. But putting that aside, his national authoritarianism, his admiration for strong men, his self caricature image, uh, you know, which was there to see, I think, in many ways in The Apprentice was very visible. And his agenda was very manifest in 2015 and 2016 when he entered the presidential campaign. And, you know, people didn't want to believe. And especially, you know, we were interviewing our, our book was the, a book that was meant to be a, as definitive a, a first crack at, uh, you know, the history of Trump in the White House as could be. So we're interviewing people, obviously, who were working in some way with Trump, many of them, or, you know, they were Republicans who, you know, sought to take advantage or to advance their agenda, that sort of thing. But um, I think there were many people who warned about Donald Trump's dark side, as you put it, his authoritarianism, his, uh, you know, admiration for strong men. And actually, I found it really telling, sort of connecting the dots of Peter and my and our own experience uh, working in Russia during the first four years of Vladimir Putin's tenure. You wouldn't think that would have any relevance. And for most of our long careers in Washington, it had very little relevance, frankly, to Washington politics and whatever. And yet it was really in like the, the early part of 2016 that many of the people that we knew who had experience in watching democracies that had been rolled back, uh, whether in Russia or other parts of the world, they were the people who in some ways were the early warning system and were most alarmed of, of all the people that we knew. And, you know, this is the, the checklist for the kind of right wing national. It's a playbook. It's a play. He, that, you know, I was, I had a brief Saturday night show on, on uh, MSNBC and I, the ratings were, were great. And it, all of a sudden it got, went away. And one of the reasons, and I found out later, was just that it was a different NBC regime. But I was one of the first ones doing Hitler analogies. Uh, fascist was, I mean, fa now every fascist, 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 fascist. But it, 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 it was early on. But the playbook was so obvious. It was 101. And which leads me to the kind of the pressing question of the day. How I'm terrified that he's going to win again. I, I, I see particularly the migrant issue is something that the Republicans are going to really dive into with their teeth as red meat. Talk to talk to me and talk to our audience about what, knowing what you know, we all know a lot of things, but you guys know a lot more, how frightening a next term of Donald Trump would be. Because he is he, he's telling us, he's, as autocrats do, they tell us. I'd love to hear it from you guys. Well, first of all, he, is, he has used two words that we should be paying most attention to since he left office. The first one is termination. He said we should think about termination of the Constitution so that he could be returned to power right away, Biden taken out, no new election. Uh, and while obviously he's not doing anything to make that happen, that is the mindset, termination of the Constitution. Remember, the first thing a president does is take an oath to defend 
the Constitution. He is saying from the start, that's not his priority. That's not something we should just wash under the rug and forget about. That's an amazing thing. The other word he used, I think, that we should pay attention to is retribution. This is about retribution. He's open about it. He, he has said this time and time again now to his audiences that his campaign, the idea of a second term, is about getting back at the people who in some way or another offended him or went after him. And he tries to communicate to the audience saying, I'm after those who are going after you too. That's how he communicates. But it's all about retribution for those who he considers to be his enemies. And I think our book, which was meant to be a work of history, in some ways now is a book of prologue. 100%. they nicely said, it's just out in paperback this coming week. It's worth picking up if you haven't, because I think if you want to know what a second term is like, look at what the first term was and what he tried to do, but couldn't, because he did have some people in his first term, like a John Kelly, like a Jim Mattis, who tried to restrain him in some ways, who won't be there in a second term. No. And I, tell, I mean, use the last record there. I think that's a really good analogy. Well, I mean, look, it- I think you're absolutely right that, you know, the prologue here is not indicative. It's not going to be a repeat of the first term. It's going to be Trump's effort to fulfill the things that he couldn't get done in the first term and uh, layered on with a thick helping of vengeance, retribution, and of course, uh, a highly personalized nature of uh, vengeance given the four uh, criminal court cases against him and the very real prospect that if he wins election, he's going to be, that's a, a, a constitutional crisis of a whole different level on day one because he'll be either seeking to pardon himself, uh, his co-conspirators, order his Justice Department uh, to drop prosecutions. I mean, a a level of uh, personalized autocratic control over the government is what he's aspiring to. And it's interesting because Donald Trump, there are two almost contradictory themes that come out in our book. Number one is his just breathtaking ignorance for somebody who, you know, becomes the president of the United States, right? Like the list of things he doesn't know is epic, right? And not interested in in knowing. No, no, no. And he's not absorbing new information, right? He doesn't know who started World War One. He doesn't know, you know, how nuclear weapons work. He doesn't know anything. One of his own age said to us, uh, he doesn't know uh, anything about most things. About most things. (laughs) So, So you have the ignorance on the one hand. On the other hand, you know, you have this sort of, uh, uh, you know, primordial mind wrapping itself around, you know, uh, where personal survival is concerned and success. Donald Trump has incredible instincts for how to do that. And one of the most chilling conversations I can re- recall having for this book was with a very senior U.S. national security official who spent a fair amount of time in the Oval Office directly with Donald Trump. And this person said to me, by the end of Trump's term in the White House, that he was like the velociraptors in the first Jurassic Park movie. Uh, and you remember when they chase the children into the kitchen and they think they're safe and then click, they hear the door handle turn because the velociraptors have learned how to hunt their yeah. prey and how to open the door. Sorry. The idea was not that Donald Trump has learned a lot of you know information, uh, uh, process new facts, but that he has understood how to get what he wants in the bureaucracy that he has understood. First of all, the key principle of politics, uh, you know, we learned it back uh, in the former Soviet Union, uh, uh, the the cadres decide everything. Uh, Personnel is policy. Donald Trump has learned that. He made that big mistake in his first administration. He won't make it in a second administration. The scariest anecdotes were his his relations, 
back and forth, his relationships with the Joint Chiefs of Staff and his relationship with the military. And that, to me, is the most frightening precursor of what a second term could look like. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. I have to say that was some of the most uh, just, you know, alarming reporting I've ever done in my career, understanding, because now we're more familiar with it, but understanding at the time after the 2020 election in real time, I came to understand how the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and some of our most you know, senior nonpartisan national security officials were truly worried that the biggest threat to the United States, this is something that Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, told others that the biggest threat to the United States of America after the 2020 election was its own president and the very real threat of uh, that turned out not to be crazy, but that turned out to be the very real threat of an insurrection inside the country itself. And here we are, by the way, all these years later, and not only has that threat not dissipated, but in some ways it's become actually a graver threat because Trump has blown through the constraints in our system. And right. So impeachment is now essentially a meaningless politicized tool. We see that with the the impeachment inquiry and quotes that the Republicans have launched this week against President Biden. Uh, You know, basically, it's impossible to imagine a scenario in our divided country where the Senate would ever actually convict a president uh, uh, of uh, an impeachment charge. And that means that it's not a constraint anymore for a president. If Trump were to be elected again, he would have in some level shown that even the criminal justice system was not a meaningful constraint and impediment. And that means that he would almost enter office by definition as as a would-be uh, authoritarian leader of the country and that it would be a different country. characters in the book that your perception before you did the book versus after changed dramatically that you as you got inside that you said mm, this this was an I thought this was an asshole and I actually felt better about it and vice versa <laughs> I should say that there are not a lot of heroes here and it's yeah. actually a line from one of the you know uh Trump White House officials uh, themselves saying you know listen there aren't a lot of heroes right. in this story <laughs> well who was most who was most disappointing to you out of all most disappointing. Yeah. As you got into it, you went, wow. Uh, I, I knew it was bad. I didn't know it was that bad. Well, you know, I don't, one of the most interesting, let's put it this way. I'll put it a different way. One of the most fascinating characters was, was Mark Meadows in some ways, because you heard opposite things about him. And he did a really good job of convincing people to, at times that he was on their side, even though he's on people telling people on the opposite side, he was on their side, right? And trying to figure out what Mark Meadows is all about. There was a time we were wondering whether he was one of the ones who was trying to land the plane. That was the name they gave these phone calls in the final days of the presidency with people like Mark Milley and Mike Pompeo trying to keep the you know, train from falling off the tracks. Uh, and they call them land the plane phone calls. And Meadows is part of those calls. So was he part of then the cadre of people who were trying to be responsible in avoiding some sort of a catastrophe like we ended up seeing on January 6th? Or was he, it turns out, as I think we now have discovered, part of the plotters who were looking for ways to upend the democracy, upend the election and so forth. And I think the evidence in the time we did our book and since has indicated that he was pretty strongly on that side, even though some people thought he was on the side of the others. And it's really, he's a, he is a 
chameleon-like figure in that sense, able to to talk his way into different rooms and different times and in different ways. But I think the evidence has now come out and, and shown what he really is. Speaking of chameleon, your Lindsey Graham uh, tales are probably the ones that jump out the most. I mean, he is, as a critter, defies logic, but it was really interesting what, what you got from him. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny that you say that. I was just thinking about that because it was actually, we're, you know, having this conversation in September of 2023, uh, just 48 hours after the House Republicans have launched an impeachment inquiry of Biden. And it was four years ago, almost exactly to the day, Peter and I were having dinner in downtown Washington, walking down the street out of the Palm Restaurant Steakhouse comes Lindsey Graham on a muggy September night, 48 hours after the House Democrats had launched their impeachment inquiry of Donald Trump. Lindsey Graham was already publicly um, said at that point in time, oh, you know, it's outrageous. They shouldn't be impeaching Donald Trump and essentially saying, you know, he'll defend him no matter what. And Graham, he still is desperate, you know, for the approval uh, in Washington, and he can't quite help himself. And so instead of sticking to his, you know, kind of Trumpian talking point, he says to us, well, you know, I just got off the phone with Donald Trump. He interrupted my dinner at the Palm. And, you know, yeah, the guy is a total liar, a total liar. And then he pauses and he says, yeah, but he's so much fun. He's so right. much fun. And, you know, I just think that sums up everything. You know, we're, we're getting these reports this week about Mitt Romney, who has decided to leave the Senate rather than stick it out. Uh, you know, he, of course, became the only Senate Republican to vote against uh, uh, Trump's acquittal in that first impeachment trial. He's the only uh, person in history to, uh, up until that point, to vote to convict uh, president of his own party in an impeachment trial. And uh, Romney... You know, he he has some amazing tales about Lindsey Graham, too, because it, it's just the hypocrisy of this group of Republicans in the Senate who are all telling Mitt Romney, including, you know, Mitch McConnell himself, uh, that they know exactly what kind of a guy Donald Trump is. And yet they're so terrified of crossing him in public, crossing their own voters, their cynicism and hypocrisy. Right? It's, it's the knowing Along those lines, and you guys are such insiders, these people all have spouses and children and parents and best friends. How do the, the ones that know, and it's the overwhelming majority, they, they know better and they're just trying to keep their jobs. It's as simple as that. How do they face their loved ones? A lot of them couldn't. You know, I can't tell you how many people we interviewed who told us that A, they couldn't go into the administration or B, they had to leave the administration because some spouse told them they would leave them. I mean, like, it was, you know, I don't know how many actual marriages broke up about it, but it was certainly a point of tension in a lot of Washington homes for four years, right? You know, my wife told me if I do this, I'll leave. You know, I think it was Jim Manis's mother uh, asked him, how could you go work for this man? Uh, you know, uh, uh, anyway, the, but yeah, you're right about that. It was definitely a source of tension. Children who would be bugging their parents, what, what are you doing? How could you do this? Um, and, you know, it, it was personal. It was personal in a lot of homes. And, I, you know, what strikes me is that, you know, I've covered five presidents now. Susan's been in Washington for a long time. We've never seen a time when politics was so corrosive and, and, the, and the person at the top so, you know, 
so what he is that, you know, it literally broke up personal relationships, but that happened a lot in Washington and it really it divided families. Who was it? Aaron uh, Miller, who was a, a scholar uh, in Washington, his cousin, right? Or his nephew, uh, you know, worked for, uh, for Trump and, and he was disinvited from his wedding because he wasn't pro-Trump. And, and there's so many different stories like that. That um, well, I think at this point, every household in America has, you know, a sort of uh, essentially the crazy uncle Thanksgiving kind of problem, right? They're all in a way we're all families divided against ourselves. But here you're talking about very real questions of careers and uh, how you make your your living. And are you peddling lies in an even more explicit way than than usual for for politics here? And I, I you know, it's it's really notable Mitt Romney actually revealed in that in that piece this week that all five of his sons have already left the Republican Party uh, and clearly he's on his way out of the the Republican Party too it, it is amazing to your guys point how Trump and everything he stands for is so much bigger than politics whereas like I would not date a woman who was a trumper it it, it, defi- it, start, it defines our essences and yeah. and to that point next question, 40% of the country, I understand the first time people vote for Donald Trump. I would never vote for him. Okay, Hillary was a terrible candidate. Maybe he's just saying things to get elected and we try something new. But four years later, 40% of this country said thumbs up. And now, after this, so what is the, as best as you can put your arms around it, and I know Trumpers, and I can't break bread with them anymore. It's just, it gets, we just can't even talk about it. What is the appeal? Is it just, is it, is it that it's just a sh- to your, to the Lindsey Graham analogy? Um, you know, he's just fun to watch. Is it, is it ignorance? Is it just a big fuck you to the world? Is it just all the people left behind? What it, it, it defies logical gravity. Yeah. It's so out of our uh, understanding experience because it's so different than anything else, right? And, and it's not explainable in an easy way. You're right. There's an animal connection he has with his crowds and his base. And the things that, you know, the rest of the country look at with alarm, they look at as either part of the show or they believe are disingenuous on the part of people who complain about him, right? In other words, that they, it's, it's also the anti-anti, right? Okay, yeah, I, I, the people who don't like him, I don't like them. And they are out to get us. They are out to replace us. They are out to get our jobs. They are out to take our lives. They are out to change our country. And he's the only guy standing in the breach. And yeah, he may be this and that, but at least he's on our side. It's, and I think it's a very negative, it's rather than being inspired by him, it's a negative energy, right? It's a, you know, the rest of the, the elites, whoever they might be, whether it be color, uh, religion, all of these different things, it's they, and they, we've got to stop them from doing whatever. It's, it's also a story, though. It's not just some organic phenomenon. I mean, it's a story about propaganda and how it works. It's a story about cynical elites and manipulation and how that works successfully. And that's why we keep coming back to this question of the Republican uh, establishment here in Washington, their failure uh, uh, to act against their sort of narrow, short-term perceived self-interest in standing up to Trump, their failure to really decisively break with him after 2020 and especially after the January 6th uh, attack on the Capitol, that has real consequences too because it is a uh, a permission thing. They didn't have to uh, hand over the, the institutional infrastructure, in effect, of the Republican Party to someone who violated core tenets of our Constitution and our laws in order to, to maintain their popularity. And that's 
the story too. It's not just a story of, you know, disaffected people in America or race baiting or all the things that Donald Trump does so successfully, right? We've had uh, that problem for a long time. It's not even a story just about political polarization. Again, that's been building and growing in the country for quite some time. You know, he's uh, exacerbating it. He's that's why we called the book the divider, right? He's he's very skilled at that. But it is a story as well of you know cynical manipulation. It's a story of propaganda too. And I just think that uh, unfortunately, uh, that's what's really terrifying here is that you have the fusion of this kind of. Uh, uh, I think really dangerous political communicator mm-hmm. with a system of institutionalized outrage machine uh, uh, and uh, uh, this media moment that is leading us into a really, really dangerous place. Speaking of the moment, Susan, I want to just stay with you for a second on Biden. And this is something we talk a lot on Morning Joe about. When you look at the scorecard, He's put a lot of points up on the board. I mean, no matter how you grade it economically, you look at manufacturing, you look at unemployment, you look at wages, uh, you look at people's personal sentiments. The three quarters of people think they're doing very well economically. You look at the way he's definitely handled NATO and, and, and the Ukraine. Yet, yet his numbers continue to tank. And yet people continually, the answer you get from everybody is the same answer. He's too old. He's too old. He's too old. He's too old. What do the Democrats do about that? <laughs> what did I, I mean, I, I know nobody's got this over, but I, 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 we, it's just, it is, I hear everybody I talk to, every single person who is a Democrat, they just begrudgingly go, oh, but he's so old. He's so old. What's the tonic for that? <laughs> well, they haven't made a time machine that's going to make him younger. I mean, this is the one, right. the political problem that cannot be solved by all the normal magic arts of, of American politics. They're not going to turn him into a, a younger Joe Biden. And their argument is all the things you just said. Look, look at the record. Why do you care, you know, if he shuffles a little bit, if you are getting, you know, a better uh, job, if you are getting, you know, uh, a better paycheck these days, or if you're, uh, uh, you know, if the country is going to get healthier on climate because of the investments he's making or what have you. And that it is not breaking through. It's not breaking through. He is, he has made uh, an infinite number of speeches about Bidenomics, uh, the discipline of his message actually has been relatively impressive given his history. That's not his strength normally. And yet the, that message is not breaking through. It is about age. And I think that there's nothing, you know, the Democratic Party is basically at a, a point where of no return. There's nobody else that, who is stepping forward. Uh, Biden is not stepping out. Nobody seems to be trying to convince him otherwise. He would probably not listen if they did. And the, and the Democratic Party has decided they're, they're all in with him because he seemed as, as weak as his numbers are, they've best, decided best to chance, the yeah. best chance to beat Trump yeah. and they're not willing to do anything. To and they're speak. right. And they're right. I mean, there, there is, I could not serve up. I mean, there are some great people on the bench coming up, but it just, you know, whether you look at a Westmore or, or, or you look at uh, the governor of Michigan or you look at Gavin Newsom, I mean, there's some interesting characters on the bench, but nobody that has a better chance of beating Trump. Speaking of beating Trump, what, because of the primary system, I don't see, I always thought initially, okay, losing will be the solution. They'll keep losing and they'll realize, okay, we, we, we got we to gotta reboot a bit. This far right, crazy wig nut, you know, faction that owns the party is, is going to change and somebody transformational is going to come along. Yet, if you just look at the primary process, no, because you're always going to have that 20%, 30% fringe that's defining who the candidate is. So what 
breaks. Is it is this the Republican Party as we know it forever going forward? <laughs> well, look, I do think it's really striking that, you know, a party that has lost seven of the last eight uh, popular votes in presidential elections. I mean, that's a pretty long losing streak. Right? And it's going demographically, it's going to continue. Well, you- and so personally, I think what we're seeing is that there's been a structural change in the Republican Party. And it is essentially a minoritarian party. It is, you know, readjusted its ideology and its uh, habits to become a party that is not only okay with being a minoritarian party, but is seeking to use the tools that exist in our constitution and our our way of government in order to simply solidify that advantage that it has of using basically uh, uh, things like the undemocratic aspects of our electoral college system or using the fact that the Senate is disproportionately uh, comprised of senators from states that are way uh, smaller than other states. Republicans are essentially taking uh, that and trying to maximize their minority rather than simply change their campaigning in order to get an actual majority. So, you know, we have a real democratic crisis based upon a Republican Party that's not going to give up uh, uh, what it's doing. And, you know, whether Donald Trump is the president again or not, we can say that Trumpism it is succeeding 100%. in the party. If you look at where the energy is, if you look at what are the candidates who are quote unquote running against them, I put that in scare quotes because, you know, if you're too scared to actually run against the guy you're running against and yeah. you can't even criticize him, right? Yeah. Look at what choices Ron DeSantis made or, uh, you know, the, the flavor of the month in terms of a, you know, hot candidate, Vivek Ramswamy. What are they doing? They're running to be even more Trumpist than Trump even more Trumpist than Trump. And so I think that, you know, you have the rear guard of this sort of uh, uh, faded Republican establishment, people like uh, Romney, who's exiting probably the party altogether, Mike Pence, Chris Christie, they are the past. And we don't really know exactly what the future is, except that the people who are the future seem to be trying to become mini Trumps. Mini Trumps. Guys, I really appreciate I'm going to do a little selling of your book. A great, this is, it's a great moment of time because obviously so many people have read it already. It's out in paperback. The Divided Trump in the White House, the reason to read it now more than ever is because of the possibility of him being in there again. And so I, I think I would talk to the marketers at your publishing company that that should be the hook for the book now for it, it's, it because it really is a precursor of a, a, banal, a, a more banal precursor of what's to come. So the book is Susan Glasser and, and uh, Peter Bick. Thank you so much. I'm big fans of both of you guys. Keep up all the great work. Really appreciate your time. Donnie, thank you so much. It's always great talking to you. You're fabulous. Peter, you and I, we both have legs yeah. because Peter and I be on TV so much together, but yet this is what you get. You get so just this you from here. You wearing pajamas though. That's what I no, want. No, I got, I was on Morning Joe this morning, so okay. I, have, I have pants on. I unfortunately <laughs> have pants. Susan, it was so nice to meet you. Great to be with you, really. What a treat. And congratulations on your son. As a, as a dad, I, I know that as well as we want to do for ourselves, there's no greater joy than when we see our kids succeeding. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Have a great day, guys. Thank you. You too. Take care. Thank you.